Welcome to the DLR Library Podcast, Need to Read. Recommended reads from those in the know. Today I'm speaking with the author Adrian Duncan. Adrian's first book, Loves from a German Building Site, was awarded the John McGahern Annual Book Prize. And he's recently published his second book, a Sabbatical in Leipzig. And both of them are with Lilliput Press. You're very welcome, Adrian. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you very much, Lily. Uh, I've just read a sabbatical in Leipzig. It's uh, hard to say that fast. Um, and there's, I really, really loved it. I found it was there's a lovely sort of stillness and sort of meditative pace to it. And and especially, I loved the way the sort of the memories kind of interrupt the protagonist's thoughts and often triggered by the objects around him and. and it sort of it does very much relate to the books you've chosen as well. So they're all sort of you've chosen the topic of world building, um, and there's a lovely sort of passage at the beginning that that sort of drew me in. I was reading it at the beginning of lockdown, um, where it's about light um, and structure, sort of sort of sort of artistic with the engineer's brain and and it, it that and the kind of relationship of the couple in the book. They're both artists. I feel it reminded me of a book called, um, or so by Tove Janssen called Fair Play. I don't know if you've read that. Um, I haven't, no. Uh, but it's that lovely sort of attention to detail and the importance of objects. And, and I feel like that's sort of come up again in, in some of the choices that you've chosen today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're here to talk about the subject of world building. You kind of have a bit of a background in that and both your books sort of deal with engineers as well. Um and it's, I guess it's a personal interest of yours. I, I, I watched your, you made a documentary on Peter Rice uh, called Floating Structures. And maybe you can tell me a little about this and how sort of engineering plays a role in, in your work and interests. Yeah. Um, well, I originally trained as an engineer um, and I originally worked as an engineer until about 2008. Um, so from 1995 to 2008, I was engaged in the study and work and the industry of building and, and uh, structural engineering. Um, so I spent a lot of my sort of 20s and 30, early 20s and, and my, all of my 20s, really, um, thinking in a very deductive way and working on building sites and designing structures and that kind of stuff. Um, and then in 2008, I went by left engineering, more or less, and I went back to art college. And I also started a creative in art college in Dunleary. And then I also started a creative writing course in um, the Irish Writers' Centre. Um, so those were, those two things were like learning two languages at the same time. And there were it was like a second formative experience for me because the f- type of thinking that happens in vi- visual art making and in writing is far, far, far less deductive than the type of thinking that happens in engineering. Um, in engineering, you're solving problems all the time. You're trying to remove uh, doubt. Whereas in writing and art, these things are entirely okay to exist in a work, doubt and um, and, and problems and, um, and leaving uh, things unsolved. Um, so that was a kind of a very formative and major experience for me at that time uh, in my late 20s. And the funny thing is when I was working as an engineer, I'd never heard of Peter Rice, this Irish engineer, this very famous Irish engineer from the um, 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s and early 90s. Um, and it wasn't until I was in art college that a, there was a, a, a sculpture lecturer who told me about this Peter Rice chap and uh, this book, um, An Engineer Imagines. Um, and I was immediately completely uh, gobsmacked. A, I'd never heard of him. And B, um, I was very, very, very interested to see what a book like this might be like. So I hunted it down. This is about 10 years ago, and I found it very, very hard to find a, um, a first or second edition of the book. Um, and to buy a first edition would have cost me four or 500 quid at the time because there were so few of the books around. Um, and then, so I ended up just um, photocopying the book <laughs> in the library and reading my version of it. And it's absolutely unbelievable. It's, I, I, it's one of my favorite nonfiction books by an Irish writer. Um, but it's basically a sort of Bible um, for late 20th century design. And in it, Rice talks through a number of different projects that he worked on when he was an engineer. So, so these projects were very, very famous projects. So his first project he worked as a site engineer was the Sydney Opera House. So he was involved, and, uh, he was involved in the setting out of that building and um, in the construction of it. 
not in the design of it, but in the actual carrying out the construction of it. And he learned a huge amount from that project uh, about setting out of buildings, um, geometry of curves, but also the importance of the hand in making, the actual to scale, the scale of the hand on making something. And that was a very, very important aspect for him when he was, when he, it was something that he learned. And this is something that went through his career. Then I think the next big project he worked on was the Pompidou Centre. By the hands, can you, the hands? Oh, by that, yeah, by that I mean that the details of a building that are made visible or that can be visible or, or that can be seen mm-hmm. are details that are of the scale of the hand. So they're not, um, so let's say, for instance, um, in the Pompidou Centre, there are these very, very large structural nodes called the Gerberettes, and they're about the size of a room, of, a, of, a, of, of quite of a, of a large room, like eight metres long. But because they're cast with, um, because they're cast in steel, which is an old Victorian, cast iron, which is an old Victorian material, they had to be cast in shells that were made by hand. So if you look closely at these giant structural nodes, you can see the traces of the hand on them, the hand that made the casting that made them. So it's that level of detail that for him gives access to very, very large buildings and gives buildings warmth. And this was was something that he took from the Victorian era, really. Um, And this is something that he brought into his engineering designs. And to me, it was a very attractive idea when I was working in sculpture and as a writer, but also someone who had recently left engineering, this idea that um, you could have these codes that could be humanist in something as technical and as um, sort of seemingly uncaring about the human uh, about the human experience as the, the construction industry and engineering. So it was it was that aspect that that sort of philosophy of his that I found very very. Well, that's just one aspect of his of his philosophy. The book goes into many many other others, mm-hmm. but that was one aspect that I was very very drawn to. Yeah, um, and that's. So that was the so that's what that's what drew me to an engineer imagines this this book that came out in 1991 or 1992 um, it was the year after he dies um, he died very young Peter Rice um, so because we don't um, I didn't have I hadn't heard of him either and I, I knew uh, I, was, I knew when you mentioned the opera house I was thinking oh I didn't know he designed it and then I realised no he's the engineer not the architect and um, you don't really well, outside of the industry, we don't really hear about the engineers of these buildings, but he, he seemed to kind of, um, he commands a lot of respect within the industry and um, so, so many amazing buildings. And uh, he has a sort of, from what I see, a social conscience for like the visitors. So they, they, they're involved in it and they, they kind of, it kind of, he invites them to very much engage with them and, and figure out what's going on, how it works. and. With the, I'm thinking of the the, the Pompidou. Um, you you just go there to look at the building, and more so than what's inside, which is great as well. Yeah, no, he was very he was very interested in the role that the engineer can have in the in the construction industry, because it's a very the engineer has got a very particular understanding of materials. It's a very different understanding of materials to say the architect. The architect is interested in surfaces and finish and contexts of materials beside each other, whereas the engineer understands building, understands certain materials in terms of their structural strength, their brittleness, their, their, their ductility. These sorts of um, these sorts of sort of characteristics that are largely hidden, but that can be brought into into view by a conscientious engineer. And I think that was what he he saw that as being important. In the end, that being an important part of the engineer's role, to to sort of pause and see what's actually in materials that in and in how they understand them, that can be shared with with the public. So it's not just the surface of a building, but also how it actually works, as you said, and how the materials work in it. So those are the aspects that part of the aspects that he's interested in. I think you touched on it perfectly there by saying that he wanted people to look at them and to try to understand them to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just sort of carrying on from what you said about you know things that they see at their level. It, 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 usually, the sort of buildings we, the famous buildings, are stuff that you just stand there and all oh, look at, but you're not really invited closer to kind of take part. Um, so, as well as just having great buildings, you, you, the book. Do you find it was written when he uh, when he was dying? Mm-hmm. Or he was dying. Um, 
so you think it's really like beautifully written as well like the way he describes his process it's funny it's it's because I've I've studied this book very deeply when I was working on the film and that myself and Fergie Ward made two years ago um and the writing is it's yeah there's no there's at no moment does his would you know when you're reading it that he is actually that he knows that he's dying. It's a very, very, um, his emotions are kept in check throughout. And there is something deeply moving about that when you do read it. Um, the fact that he was more interested in relaying his ideas and the artifacts of his work um, than getting across, than sort of the idea that, he, that it was some sort of monument to himself. It was more a kind of a catalogue of his work. Um, and that tone I really admired through the book, that kind of, um, I suppose, sort of matter-of-factness to the way he, he delivered his ideas. Um, at times, his writing, his writing, I think, is very is quite beautiful. And then at times, it is very, very technical. Um, but I think it has to be technical at times because he is trying to get across ideas. He's speaking, I think, to engineers, but he's also saying, speaking to people um, who are outside of engineering. And I think there are parts of the book when he's speaking to engineers that are very, very clear but then those parts might not be as clear to people who are not engineers, just simply because of the of the language and the sort of vocabulary that he's using. But I think there's enough, particularly because the book is so well illustrated, that an interested reader, between what is understandable in the text and and the images and the tech and the uh, diagrams, you get a very good sense of how of what he was up to and what, how he thought. The personal aspects of the book when he talks about being young and when he talks about uh, horse racing and he talks about his experience with Fiat, when he talks in a kind of a general autobiographical sense, I think his writing is very, very nice. It's very enjoyable to read. It's very unobstructive um, and very, very clear. Yeah. So, yeah, it's an interesting book. It's it's not necessarily a literary experience, but it is a very, very interesting experience, I believe. <laughs> I, Irish, did he do any buildings in, in Dublin? So when I was watching a documentary, I was thinking, I would love if we had, and I don't want to like put down any buildings we have here, but I'd love to have those kind of structures here. Why, why don't we have that? Um, I think there's a couple of reasons. One of them is he never, never did any buildings in Ireland directly. Um, his company, RFR, uh, which existed after he died, uh, that's Rice Francis Ritchie, was the name of the two other um, other two collaborators. I think they were involved in a building um, in the uh, the um, government, the government buildings. But uh, he never himself worked in any buildings. Um, I think partly the reason why he was he kind of he, his work he he got such interesting work was because he knew and he worked with interesting architects at the time. So. Um, um, Renzo Piano was one architect and Richard Rogers was another one that he worked with very, very often. Um, and at the time in the 70s, particularly when the Pompidou Centre was being built, there was a sort of, they were entering into a type of postmodern design where there were, the, the architectural statement was one of showing structure. So because the structure was being shown as a sort of aesthetic gesture, Rice decided to take advantage of the fact the structure was going to be shown and show the structure in a way that he would like it to be shown as well. Yeah. So n- more recently, the, the idea of showing structure in buildings has become less and less fashionable. So the idea of seeing then the structure is less and less possible. So I think he, he prospered from the fact that he was around at a time when architecture was quoting in a postmodern way structure. And so he was able to, 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 to take part um, more kind of fully in these, in these structures. Um, the thing about it is that there are one very important building that he did over in France was called La Villette. And it's a big glass wall that was um, designed by himself, um, Francis and Ritchie, who then went on to produce this company, RFR. Um, and this glass wall is made up of tension cables and sheets of glass. And it's a really, really ingenious structure because it's very hard to explain. But basically, the glass, when they were talking about the, the, the structure, so the three collaborators on this job are Peter Rice, an engineer, an industrial designer, and an architect. And when those three talked about material together, the different properties that the material has started becoming more and more apparent. So the engineer never considered glass as a structural property, whereas the industrial designer did think it did have structural aspects. Whereas the architect was thinking of glass as a transparent material that you could see through. Mm-hmm. So when they started talking about this, they came up with this extraordinary structure, um, and it's called a tension. Uh, what is it called? A tension, tension stay. No, a stay, a stay cable system. 
um, attention stay cable system. And basically the way it works is that it's a wall of glass that's held in place from going in and out by a, by a kind of a, a series of, 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 uh, of cables that are in tension. But then what stops these cables from flipping up and down is the glass. So it's this kind of thing that holds itself in this kind of magical um, self or this kind of magical sense of reliance between tension cable and glass. So they did this really, really ambitious version of this building in the, up in northern Paris in La Valette. But if you actually go down, so if you travel around Ireland or if you travel around the world, this style of architecture was repeated over and over and over again. It became a vernacular then, this kind of innovation that they did first. So if you go down to the CHQ building, for instance, on the docks, and if you look at that glass wall, um, the big glass wall in front of the kind of uh, Victorian um, portal frames, if you look yeah. at that glass wall, that's, that's, that's a Peter Rice design. Okay. That's, that's from that. That's from La Villette. So that is an instance where his, his work kind of entered into the um, architectural world very meaningfully um, yeah. because you, you will see that kind of design all over the world. Um, I think the Fingal County Council offices have the same glass wall design. And so okay. if you want to look at that, then you will be looking at something that Peter Rice essentially That's contributed to uh, without necessarily doing that wall himself, but the style of it and the way it stands up. That's 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 Rice Francis and Ritchie's innovation. So he didn't he didn't do buildings in yeah. Ireland. It would be I suppose it'd be the answer. But that would be a good one to look at. And it's very accessible, of course. Yeah, and it's and, well um, built. yeah. I mean, that's a lot in your documentary as well. And and there was another one called um, an engineer imagines as well. I'm not sure who made mm. that. I had a, mm. um, and I think they they might show that building you talk about. Um, Yes, they did. Yeah, the, the Mark, that was the Marcus Robinson uh, documentary. It was an ordinary Irish company who produced it, and um, they did a brilliant job. That part of the film is excellent on the glass wall as well. Yeah, yeah really, really nice. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. It, it looks like he just had such a nice life and relationship with the people he worked with as well. Like the, um, the was it the Full Moon Theatre? Um, oh yes, there yeah. um, in south of France that just looked so beautiful and. And then again, when his when he was dying, his daughter got married or had a ceremony there That's as well. Right. Yeah, yeah. Moon light to light the um, light the actors, and I guess that that was a maybe more of a passion project. And um, uh, well, I guess yeah. respite from all the big big structures he was doing. Um, that was lovely to see. I think he really liked the full moon projects. Um, when myself, when Fergal and I were working on the film, we went over to Ove Arab, which is the engineering consultancy that he worked for at the time, and we met the junior engineer that worked with Peter Rice. Um, he was a junior engineer there, and he's a man in his fifties now, um, who worked on that full moon theater with Rice. And anyone we met in those Ove Arab offices in London, we mentioned Peter Rice, to their faces would just kind of light up and go, "Oh, he was great." So he seems to have been very popular within the working environment, definitely. Yeah, yeah. He, had, he said a, a quote, I don't know if it was his voice in the documentary, but they were reading his words from the book and he was asked why, how he make, gets so many commissions and he said he makes the most of the commissions that he, he gets in the beginning and then eventually he says people come to you to buy surprise. Um, uh, I, I, that sort of seems to be, I guess his legacy in a way, he just sort of, I guess open source in a way, like he seemed to take people under his wing and sort of let them um, sort of be part of the process, which is probably, which is great, which is why we see probably the replicas, like you say, of the glass in Dublin as well. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I remember when I was doing the research that I really, really liked, because I would have had experience on building sites and in engineering offices, of um, discussing structures and one thing that I learned when I was researching Peter Rice was that when they were having meetings he would sort of insist that for the first half hour or so this isn't a very industrialized thing to do it's a very unindustrialized thing to do that they sit around and just talk about the building so there's no drawings there's yeah. no sketches there's nothing that's kind of there's no uh, image making um methods that harden a view of what they're talking about so everyone sees it differently for about half an hour and i thought that was just a brilliant that's that's a very artistic that's that's a very artistic approach um, and yeah. to doing it to engineering solutions and i think that's why they were able to that's i think that's where that surprise came from and that flexibility came from 
was that yeah. these conversations were open for longer uh, in, in what is usually a much more time-sensitive milieu, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Great guy. Um, maybe we could talk a lot about him. I'm sure we have um, three other books for you to talk about. I don't know which one you'd like to talk about next. Yeah, well, what I might do is I might stay on the theme of building um, okay. for now, like I actually yeah. can't, like physical building. Um, and the next book I'm going to talk about here, I can hold it up. I don't know if this is much use. Is yeah. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. I, can, I, I can put a picture. Yeah, do, do, do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I can get that there. I have ordered a load of them um, in the library because um, we have a lot of catalogue, but we haven't got it in yet. So, um, yeah. I mean, they they are, you <laughs> arguably... It's the most important book that was published in Ireland in the late 20th century uh, because of the effect it had on the landscape. Um, <clears throat> we haven't said the title. So this was, oh, yeah, yes. Bungalow, Bungalow <laughs> Bliss, yeah. So this was published, this, this was, was published um, by a man called Jack Fitzsimons, who at the time was a clerk of works for Meath County. Um, this, there were... A thousand of these copies published in the, on the 27th of May 1970. Um, and he put them into his boot of his car and he drove around Ireland selling them in DIY stores, petrol stations, that kind of thing. Um, and they sold out. And they sold out a second edition and a third edition and a fourth edition and a fifth edition, sixth edition, all the way up to the twelfth edition in about 1996. Um, by which time there were over over a quarter of a million copies of it had been sold. Right. So, so what it is, is, it's a pattern book for bungalow design. Um, there, in this book here, this is quite delicate, three designs of bungalows. So this is design number 16 here. Okay. You're, uh, Adrian's showing me a picture from the book. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, so basically what um, Jack Fitzsimons did with his wife, Anne, they, he came up with 20 different designs. He drew them out. And then on the right-hand side, it was typed up all of the different aspects of the building. So let's say, for instance, the size of the hall, um, uh, the floor areas, um, what kind of blocks and what kind of materials are used to build it. So it's basically a sort of DIY book to tell you how to build a bungalow. Mm -hmm. um, at the time in Ireland, there was, there was, there was, a, there was um, some housing, but it for you to get on the property ladder was for you to build a house was very, very difficult. You either had to inherit um, or you had to take on a council house or you had to take on um, uh, or you had to um, uh, move to the city or you had to emigrate, or leave, leave the country completely. This book made possible for a whole generation of, of people, basically my parents, um, to plan and build their own house. So how it worked was that you pick up a book in a petrol station or a DIY store or wherever, and you'd go flick through it and you'd pick a design that you like. And you go, okay, I like numbers. I want. I like design ten, and you'd write to Jack Fitzsimons, and he would send you out drawings that would go into a planning pack um, for this house, and then you you could apply for planning permission for this particular design. And but so all you needed was a site of land mm -hmm. and a design. And you could apply for planning permission. And then once you receive planning permission, you could start to build. And because the form of construction was quite simple, you and a couple of friends, it's a single story of blocks and pre-fabricated yeah. trusses, pre, pre, um, pre you could build this building yourself. And most of them were self-built by yeah. the people That's who were living. Do you have to go and employ a, um, you know, a builders then or you, like they probably, a lot of people just did it themselves. It's amazing. A lot of people, yeah, through the 70s and 80s, certainly, um, a lot of people just did themselves. So that was the model. That's what happened, more or less. Um, and it became very, very popular. It became sort of the style of rural housing by the early 80s in Ireland. So if you drive around, you will see uh, just off the road of any main road or trunk road or primary or secondary road, you will see houses of this kind. Mm -hmm. um, up until the late 70s, there was up over 10,000 of these houses a year being built. This is how popular it became. So... By the late 80s then, the story of it is very, very interesting. By the late 80s, um, they became very, very, very controversial. Um, so if you, look in, if you look at the archives of the Irish Times or places like that in the late 80s, 
there's, and Frank MacDonald was one of the main uh, critics of the bungalow bliss houses, there emerged a very, very strong voice against these um, bungalow bliss houses and the way of them. So mm-hmm. they were seen as being um, aesthetically inappropriate for the landscape. Um, they were also seen as being environmentally unfriendly. Um, and they're also seen as being um, scarring on the Western landscape as well, where Irishness was a sort of slight, had a slightly different meaning visually than, say, in the Midlands, South and East. Yeah. So they created, so they had once produced and provided housing for generations, including me, um, but they also produced a very, very, um, a very serious conversation about the meaning of land and the value of land in Ireland uh, right away through the 80s and 90s. Um, so they're a kind of, no one really builds bungalows of this kind anymore. They're a little bit too modest. Um, mm-hmm. But what's very, very interesting is that a lot of people are st- of my generation are starting to move into these houses that are being left behind by people of my parents' generation. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're houses that are on the landscape and they're controversial, but they're there. And they're a very, very important Irish architectural style, whether we like it or not. Yeah, are they are the ones that have sort of concrete around sort of simple bungalows? Yeah, it's sort of almost they're really stark, like standing. Yeah, out. yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I had always wondered why. Why are they all like the same? Or um, but did did he see a need for that? Did he know it was going to be that popular? Do you think? Or? I don't think no, because I actually met him a few times uh, when he was getting on. on um, what happened was was in the late sixties and the early seventies. And people knew that he was a draftsman. Now, he didn't train as an architect originally. He was a draftsman. And it was only later in his career that he um, achieved um, associate architecture, architect status. But at the time when he started this, he wasn't actually an architect. Um, but lots and lots of people have been coming to him saying, I need a design for a house. I need to build a house. Um, I don't. I want to work in Ireland, but I'm not going to get the, the family home or I'm not going to get the cottage or I, I don't want to move to Dublin. I need to find some other way to live. Uh, on, in Ireland and after a while he was getting so many of these requests to, mm-hmm. to, for house designs that he said there's obviously a need for this um, yeah. I'm going to publish a thousand, a thousand copies of the book um, and then they complete they sold out within weeks and then that was literally the start of the journey yeah yeah so it was just too expensive for people to build in other ways or well the thing is the, the, the people the, the options available for building were, so you could get a county council house and that was built yeah. by, by the council and you could move in. Um, yeah. Or you could go to an architect and the architect could design a house for you. But yeah. that, would be an ex, um, that would be too expensive for the kind of lower middle classes that were emerging in Ireland at the time. Yeah. The idea of paying architectural fees to have a house designed in the landscape was just an expense too much to, to even get going. Whereas yeah. this jumped, jumped all those hoops very, very inexpensively, gave yeah. you a design that functioned. The houses were very functional. Um, gave you a, a, a design that functioned and that could uh, negotiate the planning process for you in a very straightforward and legible way. Um, yeah. So it made negotiate, the bureaucratic negotiations that are required to build a house much, much easier. Um, yeah. And that was the kind of genius of it, you know, that yeah. is... Uh, that is so it, it jumped that hurdle for a lot of people. Such a great name as well, Bungalow Bliss. Yeah, yeah. I think... Uh, when the, oh, sorry. When the article came out in the late 80s, the titles of the articles in the Irish Times were Bungalow Blitz. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They probably pissed off a lot of maybe architects who were losing business. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was losing business. I think it was, well, it was mostly, if you look at the criticism, certainly in the Irish Times and the broadsheet, um, was the detrimental effect it was having on the rural landscape. Okay. And that there was a type of Irishness that was understood as being sort of sacrosanct by those living in the city, particularly architects who were living in the city or, um, or the sort of broadsheet commentators who were living in the city who saw, say, you know, Western Galway as being a part of Ireland that contained a type of Irishness that they, did, that they didn't want to be um, modernised in this incoherent way. Yeah. Um, and I think it was a range of responses, um, cultural and social, as well as architectural, that led to the sort of knee-jerk 
I think the architectural aspect was just one, you know. Yeah. I think there were lots of other kind of deeper reasons. Um, yeah. And the book and the responses to it tease out those deeper reasons. And by, by, by dint of that, tell us more about what Irish people think of the, think of the land. What's it for? How, who should use it? How should we use it? This kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so it's a very interesting period of time for looking at, at value that was put on land, aesthetic and actual, you know, intrinsic. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so there's loads of ways to look at it. Yeah, it's a really interesting portal, let's say, as well as being, you know, a, a kind of a historical document, really, as well, you know. Yeah, they just want people to stay in their thatched cottages, which should probably stay. <laughs> um, yeah. Which, yeah. Uh, well, we have loads of copies in the library if people want to um, look them up. At. Obviously, he sells so many there it's a lot floating around I mean what I would say is this this is a very very beautiful cover that I have here it's so yeah. simple and actually Jack, Jack Fitzsimons gave me this as a gift um, yeah. so it's very special to me this copy but if you look at some of the older copies particularly edition 8 the covers yeah. are unbelievable They're absolutely yeah. unbelievable yeah. Um, I've seen bright yellow ones like it yeah. yeah and the bright orange one edition 8 is pure country and western you know, it's yeah. got that kind of a country and western aesthetic, which is that American influence was totally part of what was happening here as well. Um, but that 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 the cover of that book is just uh, something to behold. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah. 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 I'll post, as they come in, I might post some pictures of the ones we get because they're all different copies I've ordered. Um, great, great. I'm delighted to hear you're getting them in. They're they're such yeah. a valuable book. Um. So maybe we'll move on to and a different book now. So you yeah. have. Two uh, female authors for your, your last two books. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about Marguerite Yersenar first. I only came across this book very recently, and it's it's quite an old book. Like it was written, it was, the English version came out in 1951. Mm -hmm. I think they, so, so first and foremost, Marguerite Yersenar was a, a Belgian writer and academic. Um, mm -hmm. And she moved to the US um, with her partner, um, Grace Frick um, in the, I think it was the late 1930s. Um, and Grace Frick, her partner, was also the English translator of this book from French. Yeah. Um, Memoirs of Hadrian. So I came across this book because I was looking for another book that Yorsenar had written um, about Piranesi, the uh, Renaissance um, um, uh, draftsman. Um, and I just saw this and I was like, oh, I'll give this a go, you know. Um, and then when I started reading it, I was like, after about 20 pages, I was like, this is absolutely astonishing. This is unbelievable. Yeah. Like, this, I, I was like, this is absolute gold standard literature. Like, this is beyond what you read. You know, this is beyond normal kind of writing. It's absolutely unbelievable. Um, basically, it's a very, very long um, five or six part letter, valedictory letter, written from em Emperor Hadrian, more or less in his last few years or his last, no, last, I would say, last few um, months, to his nice immediate successor, but successor after that, Marcus um, Aurelius. So the letter is essentially a kind of um, a biography, but also a kind of a compendium of what Hadrian has learned about running an empire, about dealing with different peoples in the empire, about architectural projects and designs and um, uh, ambitions um, and the civic structures of empire. Um, and all of this thing is just written in very, very beautiful, um, very, very beautiful prose. Uh, but not so beautiful that you're kind of, it's sort of appropriately beautiful, you know? Um, and what's really astonishing when you're reading it is that at no moment when you're reading through this book, and this is the skill of your scenario, at no moment do you think this is your scenario writing something. All you're thinking is this is Hadrian's voice, which is just an incredible act of sort of uh, of sort of, cre of creative embodiment or emotional uh, sort of breadth of tolerance or a sort of emotional imagination. It's just astonishing, you know. You kind of you only look back in astonishment after reading it because when you're reading it, you're just kind of enjoying it and it takes you to such deep places so effortlessly, so often uh, that. Um, you're just in the book too much to kind of start giving credit to the writer, you know? It's only at the end you're like, oh, my good God, that was astonishing. Um, there's this aspect in the book. So those are, I've painted out one of the larger aspects in the book. The book is also, is also um, sketches out, more than sketches out, 
and draws out in some particular detail as well, the relationship between um, Hadrian and his lover, Antinius. Um, and part of me was interested to hear how this kind of relationship um, would be described. Um, but I wasn't really prepared for the way in which I would understand the love of the relationship through Hadrian's loss of Antonius. So the actual writing about grief in this book is extraordinarily moving. Um, and it, it, by inflection, gives you a greater sense of the depth of feeling Hadrian had for his young lover, um, Antonius. Antonius, I think I said that correctly, Antonius. What I'm going to do is just, because I think it's, a, uh, I'm going to read just a very, very small part of the book, if that's okay. Yeah. Maybe just one, uh, one paragraph. Um, and it's, this is just, this is, this is on page about, well, of the edition I have anyway, which is a Penguin Classics. Um, it's uh, page 172 to 173. Um, I'm just going to start, uh, yeah, give you a sense of the kind of the scope, but also the, the detail and the beauty of the writing. Because it's one thing me banging on about it, but like I think just reading a little bit of it is, is a better thing to do. Okay, so this is, I think, just after the funeral of Antinius. Um, if I'm pronouncing that name wrong, excuse me. <laughs> um, so here we are. The tears ceased. The dignitaries who approached me were no longer obliged to avoid glancing at me, as if weeping were a thing obscene. Visits to model farms and irrigation canals were renewed. It mattered little how the hours were spent. Countless wild rumours were already afoot with regard to my disaster. Even on the boats accompanying mine, some atrocious stories were circulating against me. I let them talk the truth, being not of the kind to cry in the streets. Then, too, the most malicious lies were accurate in their way. They accused me of having sacrificed him, and in a sense I had done so. Progenies, who faithfully relayed these echoes to me from without, transmitted some messages from the Empress. She behaved decently. People usually do in the presence of death, but such compassion was based on misapprehension. I was to be pitied, provided that I consoled myself rather promptly. I myself thought that I was somewhat calmed and was almost embarrassed by the fact little did I know what strange labyrinths grief contains or that I had yet to walk therein. So I'll give you a sense of the sort of, of the tone and the, you know, where it goes and how it does it. And just yeah, very, um, very small. Yeah. Like it's stunning. It's stunning. There's also, at the back of this edition, there's a really, really fascinating, and it's called Reflections on the Composition of Memoirs of Hadrian. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this, um, Marguerite Yersenar gives a sort of, how would you call it, a kind of a run-through of how the writing of this book came about. Um, it's about maybe 15 or 20 pages. It's told in kind of bullet points. Um, and it's completely fascinating as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when you learn, just I'll give a couple of details. So that she started writing this book between 1924 and 1929, um, between my 20th, 20th and 25th year. And then after doing this, she realized this was a failed enterprise and that this particular work wasn't going well. So she burnt the manuscripts. Mm-hmm. You realize when you read this, that she was fond of burning manuscripts, okay, yeah. the complete destruction of them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she, she resumed the work in 1934. And then she abandoned it again um, um, several times between 34 and 37. Then she moved to the US and she didn't uh, work in the book again. Um, until 1948, um, she'd completely given up writing and she was sort of just researching and going about her work um, and not getting too, too, sort of have given up on the whole project itself. Um, and she seemed to have done an extraordinary amount of research on Hadrian. Like she seemed to have an encyclopedic knowledge of it. I'll come, come back to that point in a moment. Um, but then in December of 1948, she received um, from Switzerland a trunk and it contained family papers, some of which were more than 10 years old. And she sat down um, in front of a fire and she started reading through this chest to see what she wanted to keep and burning again what she didn't want to keep. Um, and she came across this letter, uh, or the start of a letter, and it was just four typewritten sheets. And they started with the salutation, Dear Mark. And for a moment she was, who is this Mark person? I don't know any Mark um, from my life. Um, yeah. And then... She wondered for a while as to who this Marcus P, and then she immediately realized ah, that's Marcus Aurelius. That was a draft I did, you know, 20 years ago. 
Um, yeah. All of having forgotten all of this work, she decided to, um, having read this opening gambit, Dear Mark, uh, that she, she was kind of the idea lit in her head that that's what, how I will do this. I will write a letter to Marcus Aurelius. That's how I will. And she sat down and very, very quickly wrote the entire book. Um, over the course of, I think, a year or two, she wrote the book. And the book does start with, the very, very first line is, my dear Mark, um, today I went to see my physician, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and what I find really, really interesting is the idea that this idea of research in literature when you're in your writing, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I, sometimes, and I hope I don't do it myself, because when I do read it, sometimes you read research in literature and it's meant to be passed off as just knowledge of the character. And sometimes you read it and you're like, oh my God, that really jars. This is this feels to me like the author is yeah. putting research into this book, yeah. and it's for me. There's nothing to destroy the conceit, or let's say, the magic of a book, than when the research kind of the thorns of research starts start breaking through the skin of the actual of the work, um, and this is something that Margaret Yersner, over the course of this entire fairly lengthy novel, well, not mm-hmm. fairly lengthy enough novel never does once. At no moment do you feel there's research here. Um, and I think that, uh, that her having forgotten about it all for a decade and more and have almost given up on it, but that she had subsumed it all into her kind of subconscious or that it was there in her person as opposed to there in the front of her mind or in books around her, her manuscript. Yeah. Um, I think the fact that she'd subsumed it so utterly and forgotten about it but then when she returned to it, it was part of her life and it was able to emerge with this ease, with this, and the ease that, that, that you get when you read it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, this book is a very, very interesting and really important book also, I think, for seeing how research can be, can appear and actually be a novel um, without it seeming to be or without it, you know, as piercing the novel's fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the other thing. That's the, so apart from the beauty in the book, the, the, I'm very drawn to the beauty of the story and I'm very, very drawn to her grace and her, the way in which she um, brings her knowledge to say, a reader like me or a reader like you, you know, um, 60, 70 years later. Um, I, find that, I find that aspect of it, aside from the actual beauty of the novel, I find that, that aspect of it very moving and very touching. Uh, and very, very beautiful as well. Um, like I find it is an intellectual sort of grace to it that I find uh, extremely interesting and attractive. Um, that's the only the best way to say it. I don't know if I'm saying it well. Um, but that aspect of the book as well was very, very, yeah, it's just a wonderful, wonderful book. I couldn't, I can't talk highly enough about it. Like I've, well, I've, I haven't read the book, but I've, I've um, since you've met, like suggested it, I've been looking into it and it's like a lot of people's, not a lot of people, but a lot of people like who like it, they love it. And it's, yeah. it's really sort of revered. And so I listened to lots of different extracts of it. And it's such a interesting way, I think, um, and from what you describe as well, to, to do a sort of historical or fictional memoir. Mm. And she seems to, she sort of really does gift him a sort of interiority, like he in a way that you just don't normally see in, in those kind of books. So um, I read some lovely quotes from it and it um, sort of seems seamless how he talks about a bit about his, his, his work, his architecture, but also she sort of puts in sort of elements of the time that he lived in. Um, but then it, it also seems completely relatable and modern as well. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But maybe I'll, there's a nice quote um, in the letter so, uh, about, because he, he's writing from his deathbed as well, kind of similar yeah. to Peter Rice's book. Um, he's basically talking about how he no, now knows how he will die. Um, and he says he's no longer imagining dying on the battlefield by an axe. Um, like a traveller sailing the archipelago who sees sees the luminous mists lift towards evening and little by little makes out the shore I begin to discern the profile of my death and I just thought it was lovely just it bringing in the sort of the battlefield and the axe and, and all the that that was a longer sort of paragraph sort of 
the the ways he could possibly die at that time because he mm-hmm. was in the well, I think he was in the military. Um, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, um, it sort of brings in that the historical element of the Roman Empire, but also with just anyone can relate to the sort of the end of your days and what that must feel like. Kind of yeah, I, completely. And, and that's the thing, like, you, you realise at times that you are reading about, a, uh, you know, an emperor, but uh, very, very often you feel like you're re- reading the thoughts of a fellow human being, first and foremost, you know. You know? Um, and that's, I think, that's another, that's kind of one of the triumphs of it is that it, it brings you closer to this figure because you can recognise much of his fears and anxieties and, you know, um, joys and, 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 um, and happinesses outside of great victories and um, giant edifices and that kind of stuff. Um, um, yeah, so I completely agree that there, there's that kind of fundamental, you know, recognisably human aspect to it. And it's recognisable not because it's cliches, but because it sort of resonates deeply. Uh, in a way that's kind of uh, that goes beyond cliche, you know. Um, I'm not surprised. I didn't realize that. Yeah, I, I did very little research into the book myself. I just read it, um, but I'm not surprised to hear that loads of people love it because it is really. Well, it's loads. Really Watch reading extracts. Um, this is, I think, it's an architectural site on 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 YouTube that I was looking at. Ah, okay. Now, but there was a professor of architecture. Um, I might link to it. Reading his favorite ex- extracts and um he just got the sense that yeah this is a sort of really effective book um mm-hmm. and he's done lots of research as well so i imagine um it's it's a great way of learning about about his what he, his work as well i'd say so yeah for sure yeah 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 um so maybe we'll move on to yeah Flannery o'connor which is interesting yes. because we weirdly lately a lot of people have been coming in and asking for her works I don't know maybe she was featured recently on the radio or in the paper I'm not sure um and I had this sense of oh yeah I know that's one of that must be a male Irish writer but it's not it's an American yeah yeah, yeah. a very Irish name but yeah uh, yeah, yeah. I, re- I did read the story I got the book um that you've chosen some mystery oh uh, yeah um yeah. And I read I read one of the story on the nature and aim of fiction, so I thought that was really beautiful, um, sort of functional, I guess, on on, on making your a story believable. Yeah, yeah, and that's actually it's funny you should mention that one because that's the one that I'm going to probably talk about. You know, um, um, uh, not at great length, but a little bit of length. Um, mm-hmm. No, it's a really interesting book. It's called Mystery and Manners. As published, mm-hmm. my copy is of Faber and Faber. And as, I, as far as I know, that's the only, I think Farrar Strauss, um, Farrar Strauss and uh, Cudahy put one out in 1961, put out one of the essays in 61. But anyway, it was published in 72. And what's interesting is the, um, the two editors, Sally and Robert Fitzgerald, they talk in the foreword, which is well worth reading, the, how they came about, how this book came about, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is a mixture of um, papers of Flannery O'Connor's, um, some of which are kind of presentations, some of which are talks, uh, some of which are kind of writing workshop, um, I would just say kind of maybe uh, instructional kind of talks, that kind of stuff. Um, and the, basically they came upon a lot of these um, pieces of writing that were um, written for the point of view of reading aloud in front of people and not necessarily for, you know, actual publication in the form. Um, the, the, there, there are two pieces, there's two essays that start in front, The King of the Birds, the front, one of the fronts, and the essay, um, a memoir, or no, it's called a, an introduction to a memoir of Marianne. And they're kind of two of the more kind of straighter, they were written for reading pieces. Um, the other pieces, it's hard to tell exactly which ones were written for, say, publication and which ones were written for reading aloud. But one thing that definitely comes across in a lot of the uh, essays is a sort of really nice um, and humorous um, and at times sort of gently mocking um, tone um, yeah. a kind of from O'Connor, her kind of her, her way of speaking becomes so you feel very it's a very intimate book 
from I feel very close to I feel like I feel I feel like there's a kind of intimacy to the book because um, because of the the tone of voices. It's not I'm telling you a story. It's just I'm talking to you. You know, um, and there's a number of essays that are that are really really nice like that. So the novelist and the believer is great. Um, t- writing short stories is really good as well. Um, but one that I really really like is the nature and aim of fiction, which is the essay that you've also um, independently uh, picked up on. Um, and you were world building, and, and that there's a particular essay in that book you liked, so that's the, I, that's why I chose that one. Ah, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, good. No, the I mean the thing about it is that this essay it's lengthy enough, um, and what's really interesting is that the tone is so kind of offhand. But she goes to such extraordinarily uh, complicated, not complicated, such extraordinarily sophisticated um, points in in, um, in writing. And her thoughts, I, still, I read this about 12 years ago when I first started doing the creative writing courses. I still read this essay now to kind of yeah. keep me right, you know, to kind of go, uh, yeah, you know, that's worth, rem- that's worth remembering, you know, that's worth to, to, to keeping hold of. And it's simple things, but there's also there, there's also sort of they open out into into um, into complexity. Um, one of the things that I want to just touch on here, and it's it's yeah, I think it's very very important, is this idea um, that of concrete detail um, in writing. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'd like to do is I'm, the best way again the best way to do this is for me just to read a few yeah. uh, some bits of it, um, mm-hmm. and then people can kind of can make their own mind up. Um, <clears throat> so there's two little sections that I'd like to read. Um, one is like the paragraph on page 67 of this edition. And the other one is a paragraph that goes between 69 and 70 on, mm-hmm. on, uh, on the same book. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I'll just read these because I think it's, there's no point me summarizing. It's better just to hear, the, hear, the, hear Flannery herself. Um, Okay, so this is halfway down the page. I think to begin thinking about stories at a much more fundamental level. So I want to talk about one quality of fiction, which I think is its least common denominator, the fact that it is concrete, and about a few of the qualities that follow from this. You will be concerned in this with the reader in his fundamental human sense, because the nature of fiction is, in large measure, determined by the nature of our perceptive apparatus senses. The beginning of human knowledge is through the senses, and the fiction writer begins where human perception begins. He appeals through the senses, and you cannot appeal to the senses with abstractions. It is a good deal easier for most people to create an abstract idea to describe, and thus recreate some object that they actually see. But But the world of the fiction writer is full of matter, and this is what the beginning fiction writers are very loath to create. They're concerned with unfleshed ideas and emotions. They are apt to be formers. They are apt to be reformers and to want to write because they are possessed not by a story, but by the bare bones of some abstract. They are conscious of problems, not of people, questions and issues, not of texture and existence, of case histories, and of everything that has a sociological smack, instead of with instead of with all those concrete details of life that actually make the mystery of our position on Earth. There's then this. Then I'm going to move on to this other uh, near the end of the page. There's another lovely line that I think I always think of this idea. This idea of dust. Um, I'm just going to read this. It's on the bottom page 68. The fact is that the materials of the fiction writer are the humblest. Fiction is about everything human. And we are made out of dust. And if you scorn getting yourself dusty, then you shouldn't try to write fiction. It is not grand enough a job for you. Okay. I love that. I love that sentence, those two sentences. Um, so the next bit I'm going to read is around page 69. And uh, Connor takes this example of um, Flaubert's, uh, Flaubert's Emma. All the sentences in Madame Bovary could examine could be examined with wonder, but there's one in particular that always stops me in admiration. Flaubert has just shown us at the piano with Charles watching her. He says, and I quote, "She struck the piano notes with a plum and ran from top to bottom of the keyboard without a break, thus shaken up the old instrument whose strings buzzed, 
could be heard at the other end of the village when the window and often the bailiff passing along the high road bareheaded and in list slippers stopped to listen his sheet of paper in his hand the more you look at a sentence like that uh, unquote uh, the more you look at a sentence like that the more you can learn from it and at one end of it we are with emma this very solid instrument whose strings buzzed and at the other end of it we are across the village with this very concrete clerk in his slippers with regard to what happens to him in the rest of the novel, we may think that it makes no difference that the instrument has buzzing strings or that the clerk wears list slippers and has a piece of paper in his hand. But Flaubert had to create a believable village to put Emma in. It's always necessary to remember that the fiction writer is much less immediately concerned with grand ideas and bristling emotions than he is with putting list slippers on clerks. And then I'm just going to say, as a, and then the next paragraph is quite important. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it's a big however uh, paragraph, you know. Now, of course, this is something that some people learn only to abuse. <laughs> this is one reason that strict naturalism is a dead end in fiction. In a strictly naturalistic work, the detail is there because it is natural to life, not because it is natural to the work. In a work of art, we get extremely literal without being in the least naturalistic. Art is selective, and its truthfulness is the truthfulness of the essential that creates movement. So that's enough of that quote yeah. there. I mean, you could read the entire uh, yeah, essay, of course, because it's all complete gold. Um, but that gives a sense of certainly something that I find very, very important, uh, and that I think she elucidates really, really, really perfectly. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I kind of came across, like one thing that I've learned in relation to that while I've been writing whatever number of years now, is, the, is and it's a very simple thing, is the choice of a good verb. Um, and I, I learned this from Selena Guinness, I remember a number of years ago when she went through my one of my early drafts of Love Notes from a German Building Site. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we met and we had a chat about it. This is when my book was being rejected left, right and centre. And she said, um, yeah, I think there's something in the book, all right, but your, but your verbs are dreadful. They're lazy and you stuff them full with adverbs and that just kills the, all the writing more she was, I, Selena was quite quite clear with me about what was wrong um, yeah. and I remember being quite despondent afterwards um, but then very soon afterwards it was as if Selena had kind of given me a whole set of tools and I returned to the text thinking about well, well actually what are good verbs here and yeah. within that a whole aesthetic itself starts appearing not just the world that you're trying to yeah. describe the actual aesthetic sensibility of the world starts appearing and then aesthetic this then you start making judgments about what kind of verbs you want to use not just in terms of how they bring to life the, the world but also in terms of what they're doing tonally in the text so there's a whole world of complexity in something yeah. simple seeming seemingly simple as picking a simple verb or a good verb um and that all of this leads back i think to this world of dust and world of uh, uh, sense yeah. I got that from it because I I do a little bit of creative writing myself but I kind of when I was reading after reading that I felt a little bit excited like like while you're reading it it's hard to describe you it's practical but it's also um like you say she's saying it's building the world but it's giving everything meaning so if you're careful with what you're choosing um you're not like like she, she goes in to talk about symbols as well you're not just planting symbols and planting meaning at the end or planting in a meet, like like you say like a certain uh, verbs um but everything is the story it's it, it mm-hmm. will make sense and it all comes together if, if you're if you have the right intention with it mm-hmm. and trying to build that truthful um idea um so i was trying well, to uh, yeah also when she talks about the idea that a story needs to be a complete narrative act and that it can't have some meaning that's external to itself. It has to be a sort of com- a complete thing yeah. um, where it's, it contains its meaning. Now, of course, there's lots of different ways to understand it and lots of different ways to interpret it, yeah. but that there's a sort of something complete to it. Otherwise, then she would say it's just not a story. And I would kind of agree if, yeah. it, if there isn't something doesn't change, let's say, or if there isn't yeah. something that fundamentally changes in the world of the, of the story, then it's very, very hard to say it's not just a series of descriptions. you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, or something like that. So I think she's very serious about that, and I think she's right to be, you know? <laughs> yeah, and she does sort of lay into bad writers and a bit, and, you know, uh, they, can yeah. still, they can still make lots of money, she's saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you can still be a bad writer. 
as much as much as I would have loved to have met Margaret Yersner, I would dearly love to have met Flannery O'Connor once. I'd say she was brilliant fun. Yeah, um, and just yeah, it's so edifying as well. Um, yeah, she had a, she died young, which is a shame, and she died in mm. lupus, I read. Um, but yeah, this is a great book. Um, uh, there's also Wise Blood as her first book. Um, there's this singer called Wise Blood that I like. I didn't realise mm. was it based on that book, but I love this how you kind of you explore these suggestions and then you find out those kind of things. Um, mm. She has a lovely quote at the end, or. I don't know if it's at the end. It's in this, the essay. Um, it's just the longer you look at the, at an object, the more the world you see in it. Um, I think that that kind of ties in yeah. a lot of the books we talked about. Um, yeah, yeah. That's great. I think we've got a lot there. I really enjoyed looking into those books. Thank you for talking to me. And I'll not at all. Not at all. Catalogue all those things. I'd recommend people watch your documentary as well. It's on the uh, IFI player. Um, uh, floating structures um, on Peter Rice's work which is really beautiful thank you so thanks for talking to me my pleasure thank you very much Hayley it was lovely it was lovely uh, it was lovely chatting and it was actually lovely to go back into these books but particularly the two uh, the two building books that I haven't looked at in a while it was, um, yeah, it was very nice talking those books up again myself so thank you very much for the invite you're welcome